Now the Federal Drive with Tom Temin. Hello and thanks for joining us on this Wednesday, May 10th, 2023. Seven minutes past the hour, I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. Our producer is Peter Masurlian, our digital editors Daisy Thornton and Darris Lauderdale. Coming up this hour of the Federal Drive, an analysis of whistleblower retaliation claims at Veterans Affairs. Plus, industry skepticism about a Defense Department cybersecurity policy is only growing. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of the Federal Drive. But first, a new wearable device developed by the Defense Department's Defense Innovation Unit allows service members to find out if they're getting sick before any symptoms appear. The algorithm for detecting diseases depends on a smartwatch and a ring with sensors to collect data. It's called the Rapid Assessment of Exposure Project, or RATE. Federal News Network's Alexandra Lohr talked to Project Manager Jeff Schneider about how the device works. So it's looking at roughly 160 different derived features from the raw biometric data that's feeding the algorithm. And it's looking at all kinds of different interactions on there. So I can't say like what specifically set off the algorithm. You know, there might be some cases where if someone had woke up and, and had a temperature and they looked on the ring and in the Aura app, it, it also noticed they had a temperature. Well, that, that probably definitely fed the algorithm, right, to, to increase their score. Often you'll see your score, it's a numeric score between one and 100, 100 would be highest and one is the baseline that most people are on. And it, it'll learn each individual too over the course of, of a week. So it'll baseline you down to a one. And then anytime you tickle up a higher, higher than that, it, it really is um, indicative of some type of illness. And then the higher the number, the higher the severity of symptoms would be. So like if you have a, a stomach bug for me, Usually my score will go up to like a three or a five, nothing too big. Um, but again, I'm not, it's not a bad stomach bug either, right? What's the First, score range? Uh, one to a hundred. One to a hundred. And then how does that information get from the ring and the watch? It, it's a Bluetooth. It's low emission Bluetooth. Um, and it works through the commercial apps. So we at DIU, one of our secret sauce, I guess, approaches is to seek out the commercial off-the-shelf solutions that exist already and try to do minimal if any modifications to that to serve our DoD warfighters so that we're able to adapt and get them get them something quick. So we're taking the, the wearables as they exist. I'm not modifying the watch in the ring. We're using the apps um, on the person's phone without modifying them. And then they push that data to a, uh, a Philips server. It's a cloud-to-cloud um, solution. And that's where the AIML takes place. And it's all de-identified anonymous data so there's no no pii if you will that's that's shared and 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 like i get this question a lot so i'll just touch on it and there's no no geolocation data is ever pushed from garmin so we have filters and agreements to ensure that if someone did turn on a gps that information doesn't go um, past garmin so it doesn't go there nor can phillips even receive that information we've done a, a lot of verification the watch this algorithm doesn't need any bit of geolocation data to work at all So when the next big, terrible pandemic disease comes along, does the machine learning aspect of this allow it to identify a new disease? It's, we call it a check engine light. Like in your car, your check engine light goes off. It doesn't tell you specifically what's wrong with your car. It just says, hey, there's something going on. And hopefully your car isn't, you know, sitting there chugging along. It feels like it's normal, right? Um, So you take it to the mechanic, the mechanic does the diagnosis codes and figures out what's wrong and then fixes it. That's kind of how rate goes. So your score goes high. You you don't know specifically uh, what you're about to get sick with. You just know that you're about to be sick with something, right? And so you could do some prophylactic measures at that time and 
drink some water, try to get a good night's rest, lay off the alcohol, you know, just to get ready for it. And then as soon as that symptom shows up, instead of writing it off as seasonal allergies, which this does not get set off for, now you can focus on that and go into your medical provider to get treated for that disease that you have. So it, it's more of a holistic thing. So I can't tell you, oh, based off your score going up to an eight, you have COVID-19. I just know that, that you're sick with something. We know it works against COVID-19. We're still validating against a, a host of other illnesses. I can say anecdotally that it's picking up a whole host of other stuff as well. Um, but we're not to the point where we are able to identify specific diseases with the algorithm. But I, I honestly think that give us or someone else another five, 10 years. And I, I honestly think that could easily be on the horizon because I've seen it with COVID-19. The algorithm responds a very specific way that kind of has a tell to it. And other diseases, it seems like that, that uh, might be a possibility as well. But that's just a matter of just, you know, more data um, received and trying to, to put these, these different algorithms in different bins to categorize different illnesses. But um, I, I'm excited at the, the chance that that's a possibility. So describe to me how it works with service members out in the field. Are a bunch of guys wearing these and it triggers and then they go to sick call if they get a symptom? How does it work? Yeah. So um, our human substance research study went from 2020 to the end of 2021. And that's where we were validating this thing in a institutional review board, IRB approved process. Then once we met all of our goals, it left research. Phillips worked with the FDA to, uh, to get approval as this as a general wellness device. We're out of research now and we're now into phase three of this, um, an operational effort. So we've, we've iterated on the lessons learned that we had during the human substance research study. We had a small limited scale rollout after that um, that basically just kept the light on, allowed us to use this operationally. And then when this app fit money showed up, it allowed us to expand the scope quite a bit. So we'll get four, uh, 4,500 more um, service members into the algorithm with this. So there's 11,500. Some of those are still in it, um, but it wasn't a, a precondition for them to remain in this indefinitely. So a lot of them did, did their time, um, were great research participants. And that's since that light switch has turned off and those people are now um, using it how they wish or not at all. Now, now we're into phase three of this with these new 4,500 participants there. It's always been voluntary. Um, so I, I don't foresee that changing in, in the near future. And so how people want to use this is, is a little bit up to them. There's been different use cases depending on what unit you're in. You know, we'll take West Point, for instance. That was one of our, our research study cohorts. They have a very healthy population group with their cadets. So even during COVID-19, before uh, vaccines were around, they weren't as concerned with the COVID-19 outbreak for mortality. Um, it was more of just an impedance to the learning there. They're not going to, they weren't overly aggressive on having people go to the medical ward to get to test it when they had a high rate score. But it was good to know. They're like, well, we see high scores. We know it's coming. Let's, you know, get ready for it. Um, but you had other units, like maybe like NORAD or somewhere that's that's got a high high risk tolerance, and they they don't want you know all their people to get sick. Well, units like that, they're going to use it a little bit more forward leaning, where maybe someone has a high score. The first thing we can do is just say, hey, is there someone else that can pitch in for you today, and you can stay home until you figure out what's going on. So, and so this is pre symptomatic. So your score goes high. Often people will ask to stay home. That's, I think, the first step to just avoiding the spread of any disease. So that's awesome. By doing that, we're cutting the disease spread um, quite a bit. 
And then the next thing that the individual is able to do is to get an earlier cue to diagnosis when they have the first symptom. And, and so that's a, a trip over to the doc to, to start getting cured. Another cool aspect of this too, though, is so you'll have a period, two days or so before any symptoms arrive that your score goes high. So you know something's coming. Then the symptoms come out and you do a pat down. You, you look at what you think it might be. You go to your doctor, have that conversation, get whatever test to get on whatever medicine you need to. Then your score may, may go up a little bit more as you get more symptomatic. So we have the ability here to tell someone like, no kidding, you're, you're over what you, what you had or you're not over what you had. Maybe go back to the doctor um, and see about you know, some more medicine. It's really, I mean, it's a long, long answer to your question, but there's a full gambit of possibilities really of what people are able to, to do. And what do you see the future after this phase three? We're also um, incorporating this bring your own device concept. We realize that not every service member wants to wear the watch and the ring and not even the specific watch and ring. So we're um, incorporating three other commercial wearables. If someone has that uh, watch or that ring that's out there, well, they can just use theirs. I'm not going to you know, tell them to buy something that they, they don't want and they're not going to use. That was Federal News Network's Alexandra Lohr talking with Jeff Schneider from the Defense Innovation Unit. You can find more of Alexandra's reporting at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come on Federal News Network, industry skepticism about a Defense Department cybersecurity policy is only growing. It's the Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Network. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Network. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. Perhaps you've heard of CMMC, the Cybersecurity Maturity Model Certification Program. Now in its 2.0 version, it's supposed to lay minimum cybersecurity standards on contractors doing business with the Defense Department, but it's like a storm on the horizon that never really arrives. Some company executives are skeptical. Among them, Matt Hodson, the Chief Information Officer for Vallejo Networks, who laid out his concerns to Federal Drive host Tom Temin. And Matt, I guess you're kind of Mr. Everyman in the world of federal contracting that is looking at CMMC and wondering what it's going to mean to your company? Yeah, as you know, CMMC version one, I mean, the whole point of it is to protect the data, right? And as we've seen with CMMC version two, you know, the government's trying to be a little more lenient with the contractors and give them some flexibility, but they're kind of missing the mark on the whole point of it, right? So we see under CMMC 2.0, right on the CMMC website, that it's supposed to simplify compliance but by doing that, they're getting away from the actual goal of securing the data, is what we've seen. Right. So you think they've gone too lenient with 2.0? Correct. Yeah, they're just kicking the can down the curb. we got to secure the data. I mean, we're hearing now with everything with uh, critical infrastructure, we see things you know, with Russia attacking Ukraine uh, and, of course, different countries uh, attacking our critical infrastructure. If we don't take the time and get this done, it's just going to be a bigger problem down the line. Now, you're a technology company, a technology vendor, and there's a lot of those in the government, and presumably they have the expertise to follow all of the NIST controls, National Institute of Standards and Technology controls that are part of this, that those are in place. But what about all of the small vendors, the mom-and-pop vendors, the people that might be in manufacturing, services, supplies, that kind of thing, that simply don't have the expertise? It's costly and expensive for them. What should they do? What should be the approach for them? That's a great question, Tom. To your point, they're small, so they don't have a large budget. Even if they understand and see the value of securing their network or their infrastructure, they just don't have the budget. So it's good to partner with a MSSP, 
and a third party compliance company that works hand in hand. Because as an IT company, we can only put in place the technical controls of a certification, right? So we have a third party that audits our work and certifies the company trying to get certified. And to that point, if you look back at what <laughs> the definition of certification is, it's a third independent body or company that's doing this testing, this inspection, the certification. So that's the other big challenge with CMMC 2.0, self-assessment. I mean, right, okay, I'm certified. Well, that doesn't really make me feel warm and fuzzy. <laughs> right, but wasn't there supposed to be a cadre developed nationwide of people that could fan out, do these certifications, the companies would pay them and everyone would be set to go? We haven't really seen that materialize yet then, have we? Correct, we have not. And with 2.0, uh, if you're going for level one or two, you can self-assess, which again, it's, you know, no one's checking your work. Right, so you would suggest then changing the program how? First of all, I would recommend not having self-assessments. If the whole point of the certification is to protect the data, whatever levels you put in place, the government decides on three levels, five levels, there should be a third-party auditing entity to verify what you say is so before you get the certification. And I understand why they're doing it, but to allow them to bid on contracts and win contracts and not even have the certification yet, how is that different from today? We're speaking with Matt Hodson. He's the CIO of Valeo Networks. And just for a company to, say, get the basic NIST controls in for level two, say, I mean, there's a lot to do there. And then to get certification by a third party that those are in place, what could that cost? Are we talking thousands, tens of thousands? What's the order of magnitude of dollars for a company? As you know, there's a lot of variables in that question, right? The size of the company and the complexity and whatnot. But you can easily spend for a small, medium-sized business anywhere from ten, twenty, fifty thousand dollars. Uh, it just depends, you know. One, the current operational maturity level of that company. What controls do they already have in place, right? So there's always that first initial assessment, that gap assessment to see where they're at and where they need to be. And usually that second project is, you know, making sure they meet those requirements. And that's like you said, just the NIST requirements. But then you have to pay that third-party auditing company to go in and double-check the work that a technical company like ourselves have completed on your behalf. Right, sure. And then there is the ongoing maintenance of that because Correct. software changes, controls change, operating systems change. And so what was secure one day, you know, that's why they have Patch Tuesday. It could be great on Monday. Yeah. By Tuesday, you're out of date and there's vulnerabilities. So it's an ongoing 100%. cost, right? Yes, it is. And that's that's the value prop of companies like ours is you pay us that fee where we help you maintain that ongoing compliancy because versus trying to bring it in-house. The Defense Department would need that assurance that we certified you six months ago. Now the contract comes and, you know, are you still safe? Is our data still safe with you? Sure. Yeah, usually with the compliancy is once you achieve it, you know, it, it stands until it needs to be reviewed again, which is usually annually. So in that scenario, they would most likely win that contract. And then in six months when it's time to be reviewed again, they would check everything. And there's plenty of hacking. There's plenty of phishing that takes place. There's plenty of ransomware attacks. But when you look at the really, really big, horrible breaches, like what's been going on with the Defense Department over the last couple of weeks, it's not cybersecurity measures or technical controls at all. It's bad actors that should know better. Correct. So the what they call an automotive field, the nut behind the wheel, the employee, that seems like something that CMMC could never get at, either the deliberate or inadvertent misconfiguration or misuse of data. There's no control for that. 
No, that's true. And, and like we said, if, if we didn't have employees, we wouldn't ever be attacked, right? Because <laughs> that's uh, the low-hanging fruit. So, you know, you've got these nation states that are trying to infiltrate, you know, our infrastructure. And to your point, that's the easiest thing is going after and phishing the employees, which just happened to us yesterday. Supposedly, our CEO sent several of our employees text messages, and it was customized to each employee with their first name, and it had a sense of urgency. I need to join this meeting. And so they are always trying different approaches to see where they can get somebody to click something, to give them access, where they could, you know, get into the system, get the lay of the land, and they use the same tool sets that we use to manage the infrastructure. So it's hard to identify when they're in the network sometimes. Did anybody join the meeting? No, thank goodness. <laughs> Everyone was sharp enough to ask, this doesn't look correct. So we all kind of talked about it and, and you know, nobody clicked on anything, but well, we're an IT company. So, you know, we do our best to educate our employees, but even more so for companies that are in this industry, it's something that as you bring out, it should be probably part of this is that training, not just the technical controls, but training of the employees. All right. And as someone who follows CMMC closely, and I presume you are also a federal contractor yourself, what signals are you getting that this program is going to become widespread 1.0 or 2.0 regardless? I mean, it has to. We got to do something, right? I mean, every link in the supply chain has to be secure. Do you get the sense from the Pentagon that this is moving along towards implementation? Um, yes, but not fast enough. And as you know, hackers work at a insanely fast pace and now they've got ai working for them and so the longer we kick this can down the curb it's going to be a bigger problem so it's just not happening fast enough i mean what is this the third year since this certification has been you know made available but there's still no actual certification you know contractors come to us hey we want to get cmmc certified it's like great we, we can help you up to a point but it's still not solidified as a certification yet so there's really nothing to achieve yet and it's been three years Matt Hodson is CIO of Vallejo Networks. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come on Federal News Network, it's time to fix fungible policy for non-fungible digital tokens. But first, an analysis of whistleblower retaliation claims at Veterans Affairs. It's the Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Network. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. Whistleblowers have played a critical role in policy changes at the Veterans Affairs Department over the years, but it comes at a cost for many of them. Some face demotions, workplace hostility, etc. There are mechanisms in place to protect them from being punished for speaking up, but how have they performed? The Government Accountability Office recently took a look at whistleblower retaliation cases at VA. To learn more about what they found, I spoke with Thomas Costa, a director in GAO's Education, Workforce and Income Security team. First, this is an interim report, so we're, we're still doing ongoing work. Uh, but this report reported on the sort of the, the statistics around uh, the Office of Special Counsel investigations of whistleblower retaliation. Uh, the Office of Special Counsel is an independent agency that is specifically tasked with investigating whistleblower protections, as well as some other prohibited personnel practices that people might you know, run afoul of. Uh, and the second objective was looking at how the Department of Veterans Affairs resolves allegations of whistleblower retaliation through settlement agreements. And as I mentioned, this work is still ongoing. 
Gotcha. Okay, and so let's get into some of those statistics. Um, what percentage of cases uh, involved whistleblower retaliation, and what did you find when questioning the OSC? Yeah, so a majority of the OSC cases involving VA employees do involve whistleblower protection. So it's about a, a little over two-thirds, so 69% of cases involve uh, whistleblower protection. And those cases took a median of 94 days to resolve. Uh, but if it was a favorable decision for the employee, those cases took an a, a median of 391 days to resolve. So it's, it's quite a bit longer if there's a full investigation. But what we found is that in a majority of cases, some 59% of the cases, the OSC found that it didn't have sufficient evidence to carry forward. And there's some other you know, portions of those cases that were forwarded to other agencies and so forth. But uh, the majority of cases never actually make it through the entire process. Yeah, that difference between cases that resolved with a favorable, which favorable, not taking sides or anything, but that's just what it means when a complaint is warranted, it seems. Why, why 390 days compared to 94 days? Uh, is it just because there's just so much more evidence to analyze? Or did they um, mention any reason why those investigations tend to take longer? Yeah, I mean, it really is about the amount of evidence, right? So they're going to be interviewing more people. They're going to be getting that information. And so, you know, whenever they're they're looking at that, it's just going to take a longer period of time. But yeah, 391 days is, is, a, is a fairly lengthy period of time. Yeah. And as far as evidence, I imagine that it is mostly just all testimony from what the whistleblowers, co-workers or anybody who was a witness to potential retaliation. Is that the case? I believe it is. There is a lot of interviews with with people, I imagine there's also some some documentation. There might be emails or or things like that that go around as well that people uh, have to share. So I, I imagine that also can can be involved. But we didn't actually look yet at you know what sort of evidence goes into all those cases yet. I think we're going to look a little bit more into that as we carry forward with our work. Gotcha. And so VA has its own whistleblower uh, protection office. Um, what role do they play in all of this? Yeah, so the uh, VA has the OAWP, so that's their Office of Accountability and Whistleblower Protection, and they're an internal office. So when somebody uh, at the VA feels like they've been mistreated and uh, because they were a whistleblower, they can go internally to the OAWP, or they can go externally to the Office of Special Counsel, or they could also file a grievance with their with their uh, collective bargaining agreement with their union. But the OAWP was established uh, several years ago because there were a number of whistleblower cases, and they're charged with looking at misconduct by the senior executives within the VA. And so that is another avenue that people have to, to sort of get their grievance heard and addressed. OAWP is, can also work through the settlement process with people if there is a, a, an agreement that a settlement is necessary and, and to avoid longer litigation in courts and so forth. You know, I don't know if you did or not, but did you all look at what these settlements actually entail? Is it mostly, I mean, I imagine it's mostly financial stuff, but um, it, was there anything else that came about with that? And, you know, does the kind of settlement that is chosen affect which agency <laughs> interacted with it? Yeah. So we're, we're actually, I, unfortunately, we haven't gotten to that part yet. We are going to definitely get into that uh, with our ongoing work. Uh, but what we do know is that you know the VA can delegate responsibility up to a certain amount of money to to different levels of staff, right? So if it's a settlement that has a value of up to five thousand dollars, it can go, you know, to middle management. If it, it goes up to a hundred thousand dollars, it has to go to more senior management and so forth. So there are levels in which 
that delegation of authority can work its way down. Um, but we haven't had a chance yet to really dig into what those settlements look like yet. Got it. And, you know, the OAWP, you mentioned it was created because of there were some pretty high profile whistleblower retaliations going on. And a lot of congressional pressure came from the creation of that office. Um, I'm just curious of what you can tell me since its creation, if its involvement in the whistleblower protection or if its involvement in whistleblower protections, you know, has been enough for um, the folks that created it. I mean, what, what is their footprint on this? So it, it's, it seems to be growing. I mean, they were only created in 2017. So I think, you know, we'll, we'll be looking more carefully at, at what their footprint really is as we move forward. Their first step is to look whether or not, and the same with the OSC, whether or not they actually have jurisdiction, whether this is a, a whistleblower case or it's something else that's going on. And then determining, and then going through the investigative process, if they determine they do have jurisdiction and it's an appropriate case to then find make a determination about a settlement. So, you know, when they when they reach a settlement, it could be a, a host of things, right? It could be money, it could it could involve additional training for the person involved or whatever too, depending on the severity and all, all that sort of things as well. But generally, like you said, it's gonna involve some sort of financial restitution. And uh, over all of this, we're, we're forgetting the focus on the whistleblowers themselves. Um, have you had a chance to speak to any of the folks involved in these cases yet, or do you plan to? Yeah, we're we're hoping to to speak with a few whistleblowers as part of our ongoing work, um, and get more information about their experiences and how, you know, how this process worked for them, how it impacted them, both for the OSC side of it as well as the OAWP side of it. So, you know, was one working more effectively than the other in addressing their concerns or in the the speed in which they handled those concerns and those those sorts of questions. And taking a look at the complaints themselves, and I don't know if you've all looked into this yet or not, but if there are these this many whistleblowers within the VA, were they was it just pointing out, you know, simple managerial issues or was it, you know, pointing out other more serious things since you are talking about healthcare? I, I don't know that I can answer that that yet, right? We're going to hopefully get some more information as we we dig into it more, but you know, I think when you're looking at whistleblower cases, you're generally looking at fairly serious things, right? I mean, so those are cases where a person felt like there was an obvious misuse or a violation of law, gross mismanagement, gross waste of funds, abuse of authority, those sorts of things. So like not little things, right? Whistleblowing is generally for a big thing. And then that's when they brought that information to light, they felt like they were retaliated against. So they were demoted, they were fired or what what have you. Um, and so, you know, this is an effort to try to protect those people a little bit more because I know that, you know, not just at the VA, but throughout the, the government, there's always been a challenge in trying to afford whistleblowers the kinds of protections that they that they need. Yeah, I imagine somebody's got to be pretty hurt if it takes 391 days to resolve it and they're still sticking in there. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I guess the, the other thing that I would just mention is just that, you know, the, the caseload that OSC is dealing with has shrunk over the last several years, which is interesting. And it's probably a result of COVID uh, and that people were, you know, working from home more and that sort of thing. But in part, maybe because of that, the percentage of whistleblower cases has actually gone up. The number of overall cases is down, but the percentage of the total has gone up. And so that's something we hope to dig a little bit more into. The only other thing I would add is that, you know, the, the VA is is a really big agency. So they they are the second largest agency after the Department of Defense, and that they make up about a third of the OSC's cases, which seems a little high, but they're that, you know, part of that is probably because they're such a big agency. 
And at least anecdotally, we've heard that they they do a decent job of notifying their staff at this point about what their their options are if they are whistleblowers. Yeah, maybe it was harder to feel hostility from your boss via Zoom rather than in the workplace. (laughs) Yeah, but we know it still happens, unfortunately. Gotcha. gotcha. (laughs) Thomas Costa is a director in the Government Accountability Office's Education, Workforce and Income Security team. We'll post this interview along with a link to their report at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come on Federal News Network, it's time to fix fungible policy for non-fungible digital tokens. It's the Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Network. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. Welcome back to the Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Network. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. Non-fungible digital token. It's a word few people even heard of five years ago. Now it's the cause of an effort to figure out the best regulatory policy for these blockchain encrypted doodads, like which agency should actually take the lead here. Federal Drive host Tom Temin got more from the Information Technology and Innovation Foundation's Vice President Daniel Castro. And you have written that this is kind of a a morass trying to figure out how to regulate all of these types of instruments. Let's begin at the beginning, though. What exactly is a non-fungible token and why does it have economic importance? Yeah, so NFTs can best be thought of as digital certificates of ownership. They allow you to prove that you own something unique. That unique item could be something that is virtual or it can be something that is physical. Because NFTs use the blockchain like cryptocurrencies, they also allow you to have smart contracts. And those smart contracts enable really interesting types of applications that people have started using with NFTs. So basically, it's like a title to a car, for example, but instead of a piece of parchment, it's a digital item that is on a blockchain encrypted. Exactly. That encrypted piece of ownership can be traded. It can be bought and sold. You can combine it with other items. And that creates a lot of really interesting possibilities, particularly, you know, people that want to sell things quickly. You know, if you wanted to sell a car, you had to physically take a title to one person and and give it to another. But now if you wanted to use an NFT to trade something, you could have a thousand transactions in a minute and trade it very quickly without ever actually having to take the title somewhere, mail it, because it's all done on the blockchain securely, there's less risk of fraud. So in other words, instead of a burglar getting your title, a hacker can get it. Exactly. That's the risk. (laughs) (laughs) And so there is a policy that you've written about from the Biden administration to regulate these. Why do they need regulation and what are some of the strengths and shortcomings of that policy? And maybe just give us a brief description of what it actually calls for. Right. Well, as you can imagine, when you can buy and sell things very quickly online, that opens up lots of possibility for fraud. Just like in the physical world, for example, with art, there's a risk that people that want to launder money will use purchases of of physical art to transfer large amounts of funds and hide where the sources of transactions are coming from. The same concern exists with NFTs, especially some of these NFTs that are selling for millions of dollars. And so the Biden administration has put out a policy on digital assets. That policy covers a wide range of issues, everything from cryptocurrencies and the potential for creating a a U.S. digital dollar to also NFTs, which are digital assets as well. 
and looking at everything from who should regulate them, how they'll be regulated, how to address crime that happens in this space, how to protect consumers, how to encourage innovation, and how to address issues like taxation. Because when you're buying and selling these items, there can be tax implications, and you need to make sure that people are actually paying taxes on them. Sure. So the NFT then can apply to other digital things like Bitcoin or cryptocurrency or to a piece of art that somebody created digitally and you can ensure there's only one copy of it, so to speak, they hope, as well as, again, two physical things. But instead of having the paper recordation, you've got the digital recordation, for lack of a better word. Right. Except the NFT will never apply to a cryptocurrency. Cryptocurrencies are kind of the opposite of NFT because they're fungible. One Bitcoin is the same as another Bitcoin. In contrast with an NFT, every NFT is supposed to be unique. It represents a very specific item. Okay, well, good distinction to make then. And under this policy, then, which federal agency gets a task? And that's part of the problem, right? That's exactly right. The big problem right now is it's not clear what exactly an NFT is in terms of existing law. So there are, you know, the Security Exchange Commission regulates securities. Uh, you have the Commodities Future Trading Commission, which regulates commodities. NFTs don't squarely necessarily fall into any of these categories. And there are, of course, many different uses of NFTs. So some might be a security and others might not be a security. And so it really depends on how it's being used. There's also a lot of various types of crime that goes on in this space. Everything from money laundering to, you know, just kind of outright fraud where people are selling NFTs for items that don't exist. People are selling NFTs for art that they don't own. And so there's a lot of consumer fraud and there's questions about how do we protect consumers in this space so that they're not taken advantage of. We're speaking with Daniel Castro. He's vice president at the Information Technology and Innovation Foundation. And maybe there will never be a lead agency. If you look at, say, Medicare fraud, and sometimes the Justice Department puts out really lurid press releases on when they break up a Medicare or Medicaid fraud ring, and you've got elements from the IRS investigative service. You've got elements from the Justice Department. You've got investigative and policing authorities from Health and Human Services. Sometimes there's even more agencies involved. So does there need to be a lead agency? And if there does, who would that be, do you think, best? Because you said it's not necessarily a commodity in the sense of the CTFC. It's also a financial thing. So maybe Consumer Financial Protection Bureau? There's definitely many agencies that will need to be involved. I think it will help to have one lead regulatory agency in some cases because there still needs to be some rules of the road. For example, various platforms are used to sell, buy and sell these NFTs. When there are restrictions on, for example, you know, export restrictions after the Russian invasion of Ukraine, you know, we sanctioned a lot of people. We want to make sure that Americans aren't buying and selling NFTs with sanctioned individuals. You have to have a regulatory agency that can supervise these types of actions. And I think that will apply in, in a lot of spaces, particularly because as NFTs become more mature, and we are seeing cases that you know extend beyond these NFT art where people are just selling art. We're seeing this used for ticketing to events. We're seeing it used for gaming. We're seeing it used for digital collectibles, like with the NBA. When it becomes more mainstream, you want companies that are investing in this technology to be able to do it and know that they're following the law and have a regulator who they can go to and get their questions answered. 
they don't want to be doing something illegal. And if you don't have a lead regulatory agency, it's very confusing because you can ask one agency, am I doing things right? And then, you know, six months down the road, another agency is knocking at your door saying, hey, why don't you talk to us? Sure. And of course, this policy is coming from the Biden administration as a regulatory and policy proposal. Where is Congress in all of this? Congress has been on the sidelines. They've had a few hearings on these issues. They've mostly been focused on cryptocurrencies and stablecoin, and they haven't really looked at NFTs as much, which is unfortunate because, again, consumers are buying and selling these in, in large quantities. The volume continues to rise overall. It's fallen a bit with, you know, some of the cryptocurrency collapse in the last few months. But, you know, many of these platforms are still going strong. And so, again, you know, the question is always, how can we make sure that consumers are not hurt and that we're also setting rules of the road so that businesses that want to innovate in this space can do it successfully and they don't have to go abroad to do it? It's sort of like there's the possibility of a Wild West land grab fraud type of activity going on here nationally. It's very easy to commit fraud in this space. All you have to do is create a website, say you're creating some really interesting game. You never actually have to produce any product. People will invest lots of money and that money is untraceable after it's given to you. And then people run off with it. And, and there's been some investigations in this space, but there's probably a lot more fraud that's going undetected right now. And for that matter, you really can't be assured of the provenance of the digital asset that is being protected by the non-fungible token. You mentioned earlier souvenirs from the National Basketball Association. I mean, if I go to a stadium and there's a representative there and there's a signed jersey that I want to buy, I take that home and, you know, or I might even have it signed by the player. But you have no idea whether it's really an NBA-issued asset or any other organization you trust asset in the digital world. It's definitely buyer beware right now. Buyers can, because it's on the blockchain, check the provenance, you know, to see who actually issued it. But it's very much you're looking at trust signals. You know, do you trust who you're buying this from? And can you trace its origins? Does it come back to a company that you can find the NBA has put on its website? Yes, they have a licensing deal with. But again, as you said, there's a lot of cheating that goes on. And unless buyers are being careful, they can buy something that maybe looks real. But when they start scratching the surface of it, they realize maybe they wasted their money on something that nobody else is going to be interested in. <laughs> or maybe the real issue is, can I sell it again and get the heck away from it and let the next guy worry about it? Right. All right. Definitely a role for the government to step up here, though, it sounds like. There is. And again, there's there's so much innovation in this space. I mean, you have to look at why people are also buying these. You know, Creators, for example, one of the things they like is right now, if an artist sells a piece of art, they only get revenue when uh, not for sale. But with NFTs, because of the smart contracts, they can actually get revenue, a, a percentage of the sale every time the item is sold after that. So there's some really interesting applications like that where, you know, people are finding out that they can create new business models. In gaming, it's something similar. Game companies are creating these games where you earn NFTs as you play. And so it creates a reward system where early adopters of the game who encourage others to play it too, the time that they invest in that, they actually get and share in some of the rewards as the game grows. So there's these really interesting business models that, again, are likely going to take off. Some of them are legitimate, but some of them start to look more like Ponzi schemes or other types of scams. Daniel Castro is vice president of the Information Technology and Innovation Foundation, speaking there with Federal Drive host Tom Temin. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. 
57 past the hour. Before we go, it's time for the 2023 edition of our May We Say Thank You campaign in support of Public Service Recognition Week and Military Appreciation Month. You can send a thank you e-card to a fellow federal employee or a service member or a customer if you're a contractor. Visit federalnewsnetwork.com and click on May We Say Thank You. Sponsored by NARF. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Up next, the top national headlines from CBS News and the Federal Newscast. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. Now the Federal Drive with Tom Temin. Hello and thanks for joining us on this Wednesday, May 10th, 2023. Seven minutes past the hour, I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. Our producer is Peter Masurlian, our digital editors Daisy Thornton and Darris Lauderdale. Coming up this hour of the Federal Drive, an analysis of whistleblower retaliation claims at Veterans Affairs. Plus, industry skepticism about a Defense Department cybersecurity policy is only growing. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of the Federal Drive. But first, the Small Business Administration expects the federal government to meet upcoming targets for more of its contract spending to go to small companies. The Biden administration is calling for 15 percent of all federal contracting dollars to go to small, disadvantaged businesses by 2025. But SBA is also trying to reverse a significant decline in the number of small firms actually doing business in the federal marketplace. For more on all of this, Federal News Network's Jory Heckman spoke with the Director of Policy, Planning and Liaison within SBA's Office of Government Contracting and Business Development, Sam Lee. The administration has given interim goals on our way to 2025, and the first interim goal was 11 percent for fiscal year 2022. SBA has not issued the final fiscal year 2022 numbers yet, so we haven't quite gotten to the point where we're ready to announce whether we met that 11% goal, but we did reach over 11% for the previous fiscal year, fiscal year 2021. So we essentially met that goal a year early by having the government spend 11.01% of all contracting dollars with small disadvantaged businesses. So in terms of getting to these goals and these interim goals, we're doing quite well and I look forward to meeting that goal of 15% by fiscal year 2025. Okay, great. In terms of when you guys release the FY 2022 official numbers, do you guys have a sense of when that might happen? Well, last year we issued the fiscal year 2021 scorecard with those numbers in the summer. It was in July of 2021. There are a number of things that go into issuing the scorecard. The scorecard is more than just these goals for small disadvantaged business, small business. It also includes subcontracting figures, which takes some time because the information has to come from prime contractors. It also rates all of the agencies on how well they're performing under requirements of our statute, the Small Business Act. And it also looks at the number of vendors that work with each agency to try to address the persistent decline in the number of small businesses that are working with the federal government. Right. And to follow up on that last part, you know, that is something we have kept an eye on. The contracting dollars always seem to go up every year, and that's a good thing. But the overall number of small business contractors the federal government does business with, that overall base has been on the decline. If you could unpack that in a little bit more detail, where the current state of things are in terms of that contracting base and what SBA and other agencies are doing to increase that base of small business contractors. 
the, the government's recognized, the federal government has recognized that the number of small businesses that have been working in federal contracting as prime contractors has declined year after year. If you look at it going back to 2009, 2010 to today, the decrease is 40%. And then if you look at new entrants, which are first time contractors with the federal government, those numbers have gone down even more, 60%. And if you go back even further to a 15-year span, almost 80% decline in new entrants. And that creates concerns about the willingness of private companies to work with the government and the ability for the government to find new innovative products and get the best value for their contracting dollar. SBA has worked really closely with other agencies and the executive branch as well as with the administration to come up with initiatives to uh, find new entrants and reverse the decline in the small business supplier base. Just recently, the Office of Management and Budget issued a memo encouraging agencies to work with new entrants and recent entrants. And that memo came with two tools that agencies are being directed to use to find those companies. There's an equity tool that's online through the OMB and GSA's website, as well as a new entrant dashboard so that agencies can see exactly how much of their spending and how many of their vendors are new entrants. And there's another term as well, recent entrants that OMB introduced. So the data is getting out there. The ability to find these companies is now available. And it's really just up to businesses to market themselves to the government and you know, sign up in SAM.gov to find contracts, look for opportunities, and on the other side, for agencies to conduct outreach to those businesses and consider them in their competitions. The numbers you said are pretty eye-opening in terms of the decline. Are there any kind of underlying root causes to that that SBA has been following over the years in terms of that declining small contractor base? Well, one thing you mentioned is that the dollars are getting larger. So at the same time that small business contracting has now gone over $140 billion on its way to $150 billion, up from what was less than $100 billion just a few years ago, the number of small businesses that are splitting up that larger amount is smaller. And so that is a bit of a puzzle as to why even with greater opportunity, there are fewer small businesses that are participating in the industrial base. And it's any number of factors that we've identified at SBA and with agencies. We don't think there's one thing that has caused this to happen, but at SBA, what we're trying to do to address that is to enroll more companies into our programs. We have four certification programs now. We just introduced another one for 2023. And we found that the firms that participate participate in our contracting certification programs and our business development programs are more likely to stay in federal contracting and more likely to participate in the first place because they have that extra assistance from SBA and they have that certification. So we're doing our best to get companies to, that are eligible to get into the programs and keep them in there and give them the development assistance they need to go out and find contracts. Okay. To circle back to something you were saying earlier about the Biden administration's equity agenda and kind of the intersection of what SBA and small businesses are all about here, what are the administration's goals in terms of that equity agenda as it applies to SBA and, and what we're talking about here? The main part is what you mentioned, that new goal, that 15% goal by 2025 for small disadvantaged business. That's a government-wide goal. But to get to that government-wide goal, we need each agency 
to spend a little bit more with small disadvantaged business because as a government, we've never gotten to 15% before. We never got into 11% until last year. So every agency needs to do a little bit better on spending with small disadvantaged business. So what we do at SBA is we work with every agency to identify a reasonable goal that they can meet. Not every agency has the same 15% goal. Most agencies are actually higher than 15%. So we work with each agency to figure out what the opportunity is for finding small disadvantaged businesses. And then we assign that goal. And then on a contract level, we have SBA employees that work with the agencies to look at their contracts and see whether they could be awarded to a small business, small disadvantaged business, one of the 8A program or in our other programs like the women-owned small business program, the hub zone program, or our new serviceable veteran-owned certification. Again, to change gears here a little bit, the Biden administration has set a pretty wide goal in terms of improving customer experience in government. And what we've seen from the executive order on that and other administration documents, there are some goals in mind for SBA. Could you tell me a little bit about those, the progress made and the progress you guys are tracking going forward? Our biggest interaction with businesses on the contracting side is through our certification business development programs. I still remember when I started at SBA, the applications were done in paper and you would get them in a big folio to review over at SBA. And of course, we've moved those all online. And just in the past year, We've made major strides in improving the online application experience for 8A firms in particular. We really streamlined that application as well as for veteran-owned businesses in moving our veteran-owned certification from what used to be with the Department of Veterans Affairs over to SBA. We've made improvements as well on the HubZone program, the Women-Owned Small Business program, and those certification programs. So all businesses and all of SBA's programs have seen the online experience improve and we're working with agencies and with our contracting partners to make those applications even more streamlined and, and easier to use. That was Sam Lee, the Director of Policy, Planning, and Liaison within SBA's Office of Government Contracting and Business Development, speaking with Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. You can find more of Jory's reporting at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come on Federal News Network, industry skepticism about a Defense Department cybersecurity policy is only growing. It's the Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Network. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom.